Okay. You ready? Just get my legs situated. All right. Nice and comfortable. This yeah. is the most comfortable studio you've yeah, ever it's, been in. It's the studio, the chair especially. The chair is great. <laughs> All right, hold on. Let me do an intro. Welcome to the new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy, and I am very excited to finally uh, get today's guest on after quite a few of uh, our followers have been asking for it and begging for it. Uh, we were able to make it work today. Um, but before I get into that, I just want to say to everybody, this is our 30th, 30th episode. So we've done 30 of these so far, which is really cool. And I appreciate uh, all the support that you guys have been giving me. And uh, please, I would say this, continue. If you love the show, post about it. Post it on Instagram, post it on Twitter, post it on your Facebook page. Brag about the fact that you are one of the first to be listening to this show. Um, and what we're trying to do is get as much traffic as possible, get as many listeners as possible, so that I can do this show more frequently. The more listeners I get, the better advertisers I get better advertisers I get, the less I have to do of these stupid bullshit corporate fucking jobs that pay my bills. So, less time I'm on those sets, the more time I'm here talking about what it's like to be on those sets. <laughs> so, uh, if you love the show, please go on Instagram. You can find uh, our official podcast is uh, In Love With The Process pod. That's In Love With The Process P.O.D. Uh, there, uh, you'll find sort of a collection of my favorite things right now. It's like art that I really enjoy, behind the scenes videos I like, and sometimes photos from when we're recording the actual thing. Uh, there you can also suggest guests that you wanna hear from, you can suggest topics that you wanna hear, um, or you can follow me at Mike Petchy on Instagram and that's where you get to see all of the food that I am slowly murdering myself with uh, that and uh, some of the other cool things that we do. Um, so. That was my little quick plug for the beginning of the show. And I know uh, unless oh, most of you know who the guest is, because most of you read what the uh, description of the podcast is, unless I fucking lied in the description, which I might just do. I might say like today's guest is like Tom Cruise or something. So you guys are actually all tuning in, expecting Tom Cruise to be on the show. When in the reality, we have an even more special guest today than Tom Cruise. Uh, finally, here, sitting in my high-priced million-dollar recording facility is the man, one of the best collaborations that I have done over the past 10 years. Both of us have made really amazing pieces together. Uh, a lot of these pieces you guys haven't been able to see yet, but believe me when I say uh, they're amazing. <laughs> and I may be biased, but uh, I'm really excited. Uh, he is the gentleman who... Uh, shot 12km. He is the gentleman who shot Who's There, uh, Chef's Night Off, uh, a bunch of other, a handful of other short projects that we've done together. Um, and you guys have requested him. I put a gun to his head and kidnapped him and brought him here to the studio today. Joining me is Mr. David Crudo. Say hello. Hey Mike, glad to finally be doing this. <laughs> Talk about a good intro. 
I think I'm actually going to put on the description today's today's guest is Tom Cruise. All right. (laughs) I'm glad I can be here to disappoint. If you guys are big fans, today is going to be an episode about filmmaking. Today is going to be an episode um, about the collaboration between a director and a cinematographer. And we're going to get real nerdy about the art of the visual language of cinema. I think think we're going to get nerdy about that today. Um, so if you are a filmmaker, if you are obsessed with good visuals, I highly suggest maybe you go make yourself a sandwich, throw on those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the new episode of The Love of the Process. So, hi, Dave. Hey, Mike. What's up? Not much. I'm going to drink for a sec here. Hold on. <laughs> so, um, let's get right into uh, your roots, because let's, let's burn through some history here, okay? All right. So, um, you are a full-time cinematographer. I am. Which is cool. And then, how did you get started in the business? Uh, so, it's kind of a roundabout story. Um I started out in I uh, started out in web design. Started out in the culinary arts. Oh right. And f- couldn't really figure out one thing that I really loved. And I started getting into cameras uh, more from a photography perspective. And I wanted to learn more about filmmaking. And I thought at one point that I would be a writer and director. So uh, when I was living in Boston, I took a writing class, a screenwriting class. And learned all about screenwriting. Couldn't finish a script. Just, <laughs> just could not get there. I'm a terrible writer. Um, but the the teacher um, was doing one of those 48 hour film projects. Oh yeah. And he invited a few of the students to help him out. And when I saw that he was in over his head, trying to do everything, trying to shoot and write and edit and do all this without any sleep, I decided that I would offer up shooting since I, you know, I had an interest in the camera and figured I could learn a little bit about directing by being that guy's right hand man. Mm -hmm. Um, I immediately fell in love with the whole process of lighting, of cinematography, of lenses. You know, I had no idea what this stuff was. We borrowed a, I think an HVX at that point. Right. And just went out and shot this thing and it won the best film at that, uh, year's 48 hour film project. Um, so I decided to just go in full time. I had recently been laid off from my full time web design gig. Mm -hmm. So I had unemployment benefits and (laughs) I could work for free, uh, which I did. So I went and found on Craigslist, you know, short films that Emerson students were doing, um, and worked on those as in any capacity that I could and learned about how to build cameras, how to, uh, you know, what the politics of the set are, um, how people work with each other on set, how you light things. Um, and I did this for, you know, probably a year or two. And then I realized that I really didn't know what I was doing and what I wanted to do in film. Um, I kind of thought that cinematography would be it, but I didn't know how to get there as a working DP. Mm-hmm. So I started exploring uh, crew positions. You know, I did a little bit as a gaffer. That did not last long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a whole different mentality between camera and, and gaffing. Totally. The lighting department, yeah. You know, and it's um, it just, 
how would I put it? Like it didn't, it, it didn't fully sit well with me because, um, I, I liked being behind the camera. I liked seeing the images on the screen and I, I liked watching what the light did to the image, but I didn't like being on the other side where you're putting up lights and you kind of have an idea of where they're going, but maybe you're not getting a chance to look at the image. And especially with the, the level of production that I was working at on at the time. So, you know, I tried out ACing and I kind of got thrown into DIT work. Um, you know, I, I was interviewing for a feature as an AC and, you know, that's, I was a pretty new AC as well. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get the job, but I was offered, Hey, would you data manage and maybe do a little bit extra? Um, and I, I thought with my background in computers and with web design and all that, that it was a nice fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I loved it, you know, and I got to work with some really, really great DPs. Um, one of my big mentors at the time was Peter Simonite who shot um, Second Unit on Tree of Life and a bunch of other stuff. And he was a big, uh, big supporter of, of people around him and wanting people to, to learn. And he was always super kind and super helpful. He actually was the first person to teach me about negative fill, which <laughs> if anybody knows my work is like my number one thing. First, you take the light away and then you add it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So, uh, so yeah, I, I worked as a DIT. I joined the union. I worked on a bunch of features and commercials. And all the while, I, I kept shooting and kept doing smaller projects and meeting directors and, yep. and building up my reel. And eventually, uh, I was living in Boston at the time. Eventually, I realized that there was kind of a glass ceiling for DPs locally. So I moved to New York, did a few more DIT jobs, and then decided to take the plunge into shooting. And I've been shooting full-time since, uh, when did I move to New York? Since like 2011. Wow. So it's coming up on 10 years of of full-time DPing. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. And then uh, before we get too far, uh, some of the listeners may not know what DITing is. Like what, what, what is the position? So DIT stands for Digital Imaging Technician. it's kind of a catch-all term, especially in digital productions these days for anybody doing data management. But what it really stands for is for someone that is in charge of, not, not necessarily in charge of the image, but that is translating the, the cinematographer's vision into what one could call the digital negative and passing that along to post. So you're essentially the bridge between production and post from a cinematography perspective. And if you're doing it right, you're doing onset color, you're making sure that, you know, the dailies look good, that you're passing along the cinematographer's notes and that hopefully by the time you get into post color correct in, you know, in a DI theater, you are at a place where you're making tweaks and you're not starting from scratch with the entire look of the film. Right. So then you guys might be setting like LUTs on set and doing that kind of stuff, or are you just managing what through notes? Like, are you actually making stuff for the color at that point, or is it just notes? So what you can do is you pass along. uh, When I say pass along notes, you, you work with the DP you sit down in front of a monitor, and this might be while they're setting up lights, or you know, you're you're coming in from a company move or something like that. You might have a little bit of time, or at the end of the day, and you sit down and uh, you look at some of the you, you look at like key frames from the scenes that you shot. Got it. And you say, okay, so 
we shot it this way, we underexposed or overexposed, or we used this filter to get this effect. Um, you might, but it might lead to, you know, depending on the lenses, for example, you might have lenses that are cooler or warmer. You might be mixing a zoom with a set of primes that look a little different. So you're matching those. The DP might say, okay, well, we shot like this color temperature, but that means I wanted to retain like this much color in the sky. Um, but we need to balance the skin tones, like all this stuff that if, if it doesn't get passed along to edit, then the director and the editor and producer are going to sit there for months with this footage. Mm -hmm. They're going to get used to a certain look. And then when you show up in the DI uh, as the DP, you go, oh, this is what I intended from the start. It's supposed to be warm or yellow over here. It's supposed to be green over there. And these guys have been looking at this stuff for months and are in love with it by this point. And so your original vision isn't passed along. Right, and you have to battle your way out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So a DIT is essentially the 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 other right-hand person of, of a DP. So you might have an operator. You'd also have a DIT, and they're integral in, in uh, preserving the look that you've designed for the project. Got it, got it. Okay, so uh, that sounds like a really a good way in uh, because you get to talk to the DP directly and actually find out how he's doing things and how he's using these filters and what he wants that look to be. It's actually a pretty fascinating way to learn a lot of the techniques that uh, DPs that you work with have. Totally. Um, you you know, if, if it's done right, you work with the DP from the beginning and it's, it's almost like a one-on-one -on -one session with the mind of a cinematographer because they have to translate to you everything that they want to do visually. That's cool. Um, one of my favorite experiences, uh, I got to sit in the tent with a gaffer who he and I would actually talk about the units that he was using, and he could radio out to his crew and say, okay, this light looks a little magenta or that light's a little hot, and he and I would build the exposure and build the color, and then we would run it by the DP after we were set up, who usually loved what we were doing anyway, and he had expressed everything that he wanted, so it was a really great smooth setup to the point where I was managing you know, which ND filters the camera department was putting in and like what stop we were at. And he was pretty hands off, you know, after we had set that first look. That's pretty rad. And, and I guess just that statement alone is interesting where the DP ended up becoming pretty hands off. And I think if you're someone that doesn't really understand cinematography or what the job of a cinematographer is, you might say like, well, well, what's he doing then? And this is something I think we should start to talk about as we continue here like what the actual role of a cinematographer is and how fascinating it is that it isn't what most people think, which is the guy behind the camera pushing record and stop for the whole thing. Like it's a, you're a, an artist, you're a manager, you're uh, a father figure. Like it's a, this interesting job position. Um, and being pretty much second in command is under or with the director as far as like how the visual aspects of this movie is coming together. Totally. The, the key word here is collaboration and you do that by surrounding yourself with fantastic collaborators who hopefully are fantastic artists and great technicians at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole, that's the whole business period. I mean, that, I talked about that on this episode from a director standpoint that it is all about collaboration and then what you're trying to do, what, what I like about our working relationship is that we both uh, respect that. And I think that a movie, the, the attitude and actually the vibe of the film is directly affected by the top. 
And I think that if you are working for a producer that understands collaboration and you're working with a director that understands collaboration and doesn't become a dictator and you're working with a DP that understands that collaboration, uh, you're going to end up with a pretty awesome movie. Totally. And I do think it's really important to, um, to also call out the production designer, yep. the, the hair and makeup folks, the, the, the costume designer, because all that stuff that you put in front of the camera is, you know, that's for me to light and for these people to bring their kind of artistic uh, contributions to the film. They're just as important as, as every other, you know, every other role. And again, the word is collaboration here. Yeah, and that's an interesting conversation too because I spent a few years shooting and uh, doing DP work as well and I would find on lower budget productions people were so concerned with what kind of camera you were shooting with, what type of gear you were shooting with and they would have a small budget and they would dump most of their cash into the tech shit where they'd be like, oh fuck, I want to shoot this on a red, I want to shoot this with that and they really weren't paying attention to the stuff that goes in front of the camera and as a cinematographer, as a DP, I sort of sit there and go, look, I can shoot a great image of a white wall, but if this stuff isn't there for us to light, if the stuff isn't there in front of that camera, it's still going to look like shit. So like you're wasting your money on all this gear if you guys aren't putting the stuff in front of the camera to start with. Totally. Um, which I think is a important, little important lesson for uh, for for myself every time I go start a new production. Uh, so, uh, okay. So then you got into, uh, shooting, right? So how did you start becoming a cinematographer? Like, how did you, how did you break into it? Um, so I had, I guess I'd probably developed a few relationships with up and coming directors who were starting to get bigger jobs. Uh, ones that I may have done some, you know, short film with or, or some freebie or low budget commercial here and there, you know, they were starting to establish themselves. And, and I think that's, Part, like pretty much a normal part of the process when when you're coming up in the industry you come up with people at the same time and hopefully you've developed good relationships and you just kind of have to wait it out you know once in a while you get lucky and you know there were a couple instances where I was able to tell producers that I had DIT'd for hey I'm shooting now um, you know you got anything coming up you got maybe something a little smaller than than what you usually hire your guys for that that you wouldn't get those for can I shoot those and once in a while you know something would come through there um, it's you know it's a long 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 process it is a long slog of just years and years of hard work and building relationships and you know being almost 10 years into it I feel like I still have so much ahead of me <laughs> and it, it sometimes feels like you know, like you haven't made a dent, um, but it, you know, it's, it's just part of the gig. And I, I think that the relationships that have been developed along the way, like that's, that's really the, the important part. Yeah. It's time in, in general, like we have always said on the show, it takes you at least eight years before anybody gives a shit about you, you know? So like you have to put in a, that hard work, homework time, which is like, how do I use the camera? Right. What are, what is my style for lighting? What is my style um, for for camera movement and lens choices and all that stuff? That's like the hard work labor stuff. Uh, and then it is just it's it's almost like you need a dating app for directors and cinematographers because it's like you go into uh, like a dating circle. Oh, and, totally. You know, and it's like this courtship that happens where uh, you know I see your work, and that's kind of how we met. 
Um, cause I, th- I can't remember who initiated it, but I think we had both been looking at each other's work for a while. Um, and at the time I was shooting everything that we were doing. Um, and it wasn't until 12 KM when I'm like, Hey, I'm going to fucking direct a movie in another language that I don't speak. I'm not going to be an asshole and try to DP direct and deal with this whole thing that I, uh, sort of checked my ego and went, look, I have to find a good collaborator. And then that's when we started to, that's when I reached out to you and I was like, okay, cause I had seen your work and as a shooter director, I was concerned for two things. One, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to team up with a cinematographer that was like an old school guy that was going to bully me around because I had heard a lot of those stories, especially back before the digital age, really. And when you're dealing in the film world, there was a lot of trust that has to happen with cinematographers. And there's a, there was a lot of old school guys that had like the rhythms and their ways of doing things. And being a young director, if you're hiring someone that is much older than you, um, sometimes you can become intimidated and you get worried that your vision may get stomped out and sort of squashed out. And that was really a big concern of mine when I was looking for cinematographers. And then two, I wanted to find someone that knew more than I did, which is important. I didn't want to be that guy on set that was telling someone how to do fucking things. I wanted that person that I was collaborating with to come over with great ideas and, and, and new ideas, additional to what I was planning. Because if you're going to collaborate with someone, you want to find someone that does uh, contribute and make your work better. You don't want to be pulling people through and you don't want to be doing that. Um, and then your work was fucking fantastic. Like your style Thanks. right off the bat fit what my style was. And I remember looking at your images going, oh, it would be really rad to see the kind of shit that I do put through your lens. And I think that's one of the big reasons why I was like, okay, this guy seems pretty cool. <laughs> well, that's, that's cool. That's a, that's a really, uh, that's a really cool insight as to how, you know, what your thought process was there. I, I would hope, you know, it's, it's sad that the, I don't know if it's a perception or if it really happens. I don't think I've experienced it, but I don't direct, so I wouldn't really know, but you know, I would hope that anybody out there, the first time you're working with them, even if they know way more than you, if they're, you know, have a much longer career, I would hope that they're professional enough to realize that it's still a collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, you go in, you do your best. And if someone doesn't know something, you try and guide them along and maybe you learn something along the way too. And that, that is, that is an approach that I try to bring to all of my collaborations. Um, even with much younger directors, you know, I'm not the most experienced guy in the field, but I have worked with directors that, you know, might be 10 years younger than me or in their first few years of, of their careers. And, you know, for me, it's important to, to collaborate just as I would anywhere else. Yeah. And I I think that what some directors, some younger directors that I've talked to, or even some of my peers, when I was coming up, when they were looking for cinematographers and even in my short run as a as a DP in dealing with directors. Um, I think that what ends up happening when you're younger and inexperienced is it's, it's like an, it's an insecurity slash ego game. Cause if, as a director and as a DP worse for a DP, actually yep. the only way you can practice is by somehow convincing everybody to do this thing. Like there's only a certain amount of stuff that you and I can do on our own. Like we can take a camera out, we can practice framing, we can practice that stuff. But the actual art of like, a commanding a crew and getting that collaboration in, into place, you have to have money in place. You have to be able to have convinced all these people to work for you, probably for nothing at that stage. 
So there's a whole lot of bullshitting that has to happen, especially if you're a new director and you're coming out of the gate and you're like, I got this. And you have to have a strong fucking vision and you have to uh, really convince everybody that, hey, look, it's going to be worth the three days or the fucking three weeks that I'm going to give to this guy or, or woman because they don't have the fucking money and I need the experience and skill to do so. And I think when you're younger, and I knew, I know that I dealt with this when I was younger, um, you confuse confidence with ego and this is sort of fake arrogance that comes out of it where because you're feeling insecure, you're like, I know what I'm fucking doing. I'm totally. This, this is my vision. This is how I'm going to do it. I know how to fuck to do this. So you just listen to my vision and you just fucking go with it. And that ends up becoming a really toxic and very generally there's a lot of that that goes around a very toxic sort of working environment and um it took me a little while to learn that myself that if you court your your cinematographer as a director you actually have to date each other for a little while before you actually do it and if you're <laughs> if you're in a good position especially if you're doing like low buck stuff like sometimes you're on a job like a commercial job or something and the, the client or the producer's like I hired the cinematographer you're gonna work with this guy and you're like okay it's only a couple of days and we'll figure it out we'll flush it out um, but if you're doing a film or a personal project you really need to hang out and you really need to talk about movies you really need to talk about life you need to talk about food because when we do a project we're attached to the hip totally for that whole project and there hits a point where when we shoot stuff you and I will do a lot of uh, gabbing and drinking beers and talking about shit in prep. But then on the shoots, we just sort of walk away from each other. And it, like, that's what I really like about it is that we'll talk a little bit in the morning and then you'll go fucking work and I'll go work. Uh, we'll get twice as much done and then I'll go look at the monitor and you'll look at the monitor. And first shot is usually what we look at and we go, what are you thinking? How do you think the look and what are you thinking? It's like, yeah, good. Or no, maybe a little bit of this, boom, boom, boom. And then it's done. And then I, like you've seen it, I just walk away and I let you fucking run with it. Unless I see something that I'm like, eh, in the edit, that might be a fucking problem. But other than that, and I think the only reason why we have that relationship is because we spent, what, like a month at least talking before we worked together on 12 Camp, right? Yeah. Um, I forget what time of year, but I remember you came down to New York and we hung out well ahead of time. We, you know, we'd have a ton of phone calls. We exchanged uh, references here and there. And, you know, by the time I, I got on set and, you know, what I really loved was you showed up with, with storyboards, like really detailed, beautiful storyboards and thought through all the blocking. And it made the process very, very simple. Um, you know, for me, I'm a very visual person, so no surprise there. <laughs> but it reading a shot list or being told what kind of shots you're wanting that's that's all well and good that totally works and that's that's a legitimate way of doing projects but for me if you're trying to do something that's really specific especially with something like 12km which had a lot of designed shots which had very specific blocking with characters getting from point a to point b to point c and them crossing paths at different times all this stuff had to be thought out and to have that in a visual form where we could just check the boxes and say okay we got this shot which gets you know, it gets the story from this point to that point, but we, you know, we can also spend the time to light it because we're not sitting there trying to figure out yeah. who's going where and, you know, what, what kind of issues it's going to cause if you're in the wrong side of the camera, that sort of thing. I mean, that was, 
that that's what helped make what probably would have been 20 hour days into relatively manageable 15 or 16 hour days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very true. And you, you forget that how much time is actually wasted if you don't have the time to do the prep or if you, if you're not someone that believes in prep, which I don't understand how that could exist, but uh, just in like, where's the island supposed to be and where are the characters walking? And then what's the continuity? And then, you know, if you just, pre-think those things out from a directorial standpoint if i could sit there and go look i know where the characters are i know who's control this frame i know who should be bigger in this frame i know who should be smaller in this frame then when you and i start to talk and when we're on set we can we can start to texture which is a lot of the stuff that people like about 12 cam is like the lighting texture the color lighting the the color contrast that we do for that piece uh, the lens choices the camera movements like all those things that I can kind of think about in pre, but I really can't see it until we actually look at the monitor and we see it on set. And we're like, oh, right. So um, I think that prep allowed us to make 12KM um, as good as it was. And it's not just my prep. It's also your prep, too, because we were talking early about like what camera we want to shoot with and what lenses we wanted to shoot with and the look and the vibe. Um which you got pretty quickly. That was just sending movies and talking about different movies, right? Yeah. Um, that was, I mean, you sent me the script. Uh, the biggest thing for me was was the lenses. And you sent me the script and it was in Russian with English translations. And I'm like, okay, well, I've got this set of, of you know, late 70s, early 80s, Russian Soviet anamorphic lenses sitting right here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is like the obvious choice of what we're going to use. Um, but you know, the, those lenses were used on old Tarkovsky films like Solaris used the, the, uh, Lomo square fronts. Yeah. And it was just an aesthetic that immediately fit. And obviously like every DP asshole out there, I, uh, I immediately suggest, Hey, we should shoot this on film too while we're at it, <laughs> which got shut down in about three seconds as usual. Um, but the closest thing I think at the time was the, you know, the Alexa. So that was, that was a pretty easy choice. And, and after that, it it was all about the lighting and the the colors and, and how we were going to transition from, you know, the, the digging hole into the basement, into this office where the person that's running the entire show is. And so there were a lot of color cues and, and, you know, a lot of, um, framing ideas that were really great to discuss ahead of time. You know, looking at those storyboards and seeing, okay, this this exists here, which then pans over to there, and this character walks over there. So we have to have that kind of coverage. Yeah. But there were some points where we were able to see uh, places that we could combine shots. We were able to find places where uh, we could do something really cool. Um, you know, I forget the exact specifics, but, you know, like a little overhead here or an insert there or just rethinking an entire establishing shot. Yeah. Just so, and being able to see that in the context of everything else that had been planned ahead of time and not trying to scramble and find that on set. So, you know, having that kind of luxury of prep is, I mean, it's, it's a luxury to an extent, but it's also a necessity. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, we did the same thing on who's there. Like, I feel like that's such an important aspect to stuff especially if you're on a budget you're on a very small budget and at the end of the day one of the things that's constantly going through my head as a as a director is that the audience that we're playing for right now is used to seeing things super fast 
Like they're used to just retaining and, and gathering information. I mean, look how fast you just swipe through. How many images do you swipe through in fucking Instagram? And yeah, so thousands, thousands. And so for me, when I'm thinking about this stuff, unless it's a very specific stylized moment where I'm going to do very minimal coverage, I'm always really, and that's usually the source of my anxiety during the day <laughs> is coverage. It's just knowing, cause I've been, I cut a lot of these pieces. So I, I've been in the edit going like, fuck me. If I had only got two or three shots more or, or 10 or 12 different fucking versions of this, then this piece wouldn't get boring about 20 seconds into it, you know? Um, and that's kind of where, uh, that's usually the fight that I have. I've worked with other cinematographers in the past that get so really concerned with details. So like we'll be shooting in a, in like a bakery and there's like a bunch of like chrome surfaces and he's running around having a gaffer fucking knocks certain highlights off of chrome objects in the background and not really communicating to me. And so you're sitting there as a director, assuming that the work that's being done is necessity for the piece. And then you look at your watch and it's been fucking 40 minutes in between the setup. And you're like, dude, what's going on? He's like, I'm trying to hit the fucking highlights and stuff. And I'm like, you just killed like three or four shots of my coverage. Totally. Doing that. Um, and so I think it's just really important the communication between uh, a cinematographer and a director, because most cinematographers, it's all about image for them. And um, the unfortunate part of this business is you're only as good as your last shot. And so what you're trying to do, unless you really believe in the project, and I've been in this position, you're building your reel. So like sometimes I'll take a job where it's a last minute thing and you know, whatever, I need the money and who gives a shit and maybe I'll get a couple pieces for my reel. And that's a mindset that I've gone into jobs with and I know a lot of shooters have been in jobs with. Um, and that's a mindset that I try to break immediately now when I'm working with somebody because it's like, fuck, if we both do our job right, like even though you're gonna have like a really cool image, a picture on your reel, imagine if the fucking scene can go on the reel. Imagine if you can just put the whole fucking scene on because that scene is so epic and amazing with the coverage that we got and the acting we got and the blocking we got. Um, I'm rambling about this. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's, it's a really big topic that you just brought up. You know, there's so many facets to this. The... You know, uh, on the one hand, there's that selfish side of you that as a DP where you want to make every image perfect. And I've, you know, back in my DIT days, I got some really great lessons from a bunch of different DPs. And I worked with one DP that was so perfectionist that his, his work was stunning. But you would go into overtime every day. There were scenes that would have to be cut because there wasn't enough time to finish them etc cetera, etc cetera. but the shots you did get were like the most beautiful shots i've ever seen then there was you know there were other guys like one one guy was the the guy that was brought in to get projects back on schedule and funny enough it wasn't the same project with these two guys okay, okay. <laughs> totally. but this guy would come in and he would line up a shot and by the time that he was saying roll the everybody would have to be set you know like if you're set if there's a a grip somewhere setting a flag or something like that. Like he's, he's yelling roll. So either set it or walk away. And I like to think that my style is somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's worth sacrificing the image entirely. I also don't think it's worth, uh, agonizing over each frame and ending up without a finished product. So I tend to go, you know, I tend to try and get stuff about 80% of the way there. 
and if there's more time to perfect, I'll keep perfecting as you know as things happen. You know, if, if uh, Vanities needs to run in and adjust something on an actor, I might have a, a grip run in and, and knock a highlight down. Yeah. But those are the last things I'm going to agonize over, because when you look at it on a screen and it's all cut together and you've got a shot that's up for three seconds, you're not going to sit there, you know, looking at that one highlight. You're going to sit there and watch how the scene works. And if it, if the entire scene is just that one shot because there was no time for any coverage because you spent six hours lighting it, um, you know, you might end up with, with a bad movie and no one wants that, you know, bad movies don't win awards. So this seems like a good spot to stop and do a little bit of the homework. We got to say hello to the sponsors, to the people that support this show. Uh, but I hope you guys are enjoying the I, an insider look into the love relationship between a director and a photographer. Uh, okay, so first up for sponsors today are our good buddies at Puget Systems. Uh, go to PugetSystems.com if you are in the market for a brand new computer. I'm going to just say it outright, 100%. In our business, you don't have to own an Apple product to be a professional. Uh, somehow that got started years ago. It became the industry standard. It is not true anymore. You can actually buy a custom-built PC and you can build this thing out to the specs that you need. Uh, for it to be awesome, uh, fast, efficient, uh, cost-effective, and upgradable. Um, and sure, you can go online and do all the specs and the research and uh, build your own PC, uh, which I used to do when I was younger. But as you get older, as you start to run a business, as you start to focus your career, the last thing you want to do is be running tech support for the people that are cutting your movies. You just don't want to get into that game. Um, but I also want tech support from a company that when I call or if I uh, communicate with them online, I'm actually talking to a real individual that works at that company. Um, and I did a bunch of research when I was making the jump um, from a Mac to a PC and I found Puget Systems uh, and they're a fantastic company, a family owned company, uh, really great people that give a shit about the art we make as creators. Uh, they're very supportive of this show um, and all of my movies that I have cut over the past few years, all of the projects that I've done have been on a Puget Systems PC. I've got a monster 4K edit system uh, that runs like real-time tracks of 4K video. It's really cool uh, and I've had it for a few years now and it's still doing that. So if you are in the, if you are looking for a new computer, go to PugetSystems.com. They do a really cool thing on their website where they separate it out by the different software that you use. So like you go there and go, hey, I'm uh, in Premiere. What's your baseline system for Premiere? Or uh, I'm using uh, After Effects or I'm using uh, Photoshop. Uh, and they'll give you suggestions on where to start in their system breakdowns. And you can also build something custom by talking to them specifically. Uh, so definitely head on over to PugetSystems.com. Support the guys that support me. Uh, okay, also up. Uh, okay, so if you are a young filmmaker, if you're a young photographer, if you're a, a young DP and you're trying to work with the newest and latest gear, you have clients that are asking to work with the newest, latest gear, 
uh, and you're just finding it impossible to keep up with the change in technology as far as purchasing your own equipment is concerned, uh, I highly suggest you make a solid relationship with your local rental house. Um, and on the East Coast here, uh, north of New York, uh, it's all rural Boston camera. Uh, I am good friends with these guys. I have been working with them for over 14, 15 years. Um, and I treasure my relationship with them. They teach you how to use new equipment. Like, so if, like for instance, I'm about to do a job and actually go and shoot for another director. I'm gonna use a camera that I haven't used in a long time. I'm gonna go over there and they're gonna run me through the whole thing again. So I'll learn about the codecs used. I'll learn about the menu systems used. I'll be able to test different lenses. Uh, it's really cool to be able to get your hands on stuff before you go on a shoot. Um, and Rural Boston Camera is a great place for learning. They run uh, learning labs. Um, all of the rental agents and the sales agents really love cinema. I actually go in there and I get real nerdy with Brian who works in the rental department. We talk about Marvel movies all day. Uh, and my good buddy Nick over there, uh, we talk about beer and uh, you know all the stuff that I talk about on the show. You know, we, I, me going to pick up camera, you can pretty much expect I'm gonna be there about mm, an hour, 40 minutes, too much. Too much time there, hanging out with those dudes. Uh, so, quit rambling, Mike, and just get to it. <laughs> Go to Rule Boston Camera, check out rule.com, Rule Boston Camera. Uh, they're also on Instagram uh, at Rule Boston Camera. Uh, and if you are looking to rent gear and you're not on the East Coast, find your local rental place. Uh, don't just order the gear from online rental places. They have their they have their place, but most of the time you want a spot that is local to you. So if you have problems on set, you can just call them up and they'll bring you a new piece of equipment. It's really cool, guys. So check out Rule. Also, uh, I have really appreciated the support I've been getting. We have lots of new listeners. The show seems to be spreading, which is cool. Cool as hell, man. And... Uh, it's really great because we're now getting to the point where uh, donations from you guys and uh, support from you guys are really starting to help pay for the hosting and pay for that stuff. And I just needed to continue. Uh, and my goal this year is to put out more episodes faster um, and uh, try to get a little bit more regular with the schedule while I can. Um, and so the best way to do that is to uh, support us. So if you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, there's like a $5 donation that can be made and if you don't have five bucks and you don't want to reach in your own wallet which i understand the economy isn't as amazing as trump says it is um then sign up for a free trial at audible if you haven't done yet if you haven't done so yet you can go over there sign up for a free trial at let me find the url so that i say it right go to audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process that is audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. Sign up for your uh, free 30-day trial, which also comes with a free audio book, so you can try the whole thing out, which is super cool. Um, and everybody that does that, uh, we get kicked some cash. So that isn't any cash out of your wallet. That's just cash that's coming to Audible, coming to us through Audible because we enjoy Audible. We enjoy listening to uh, books from them. I have listened to uh, Dr. Sleep recently, which is the sequel to The Shining, which they're actually making into a movie, which is kind of rad. Um, so like I said, support us, support us, please support us. Uh, and the more you do, the more I'll give back to you. All right. That was kind of a 
B-grade read for sponsors today. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to get right back into it. Let's get nerdy with Crudo. continue down this rabbit hole here's here's another thing too as a shooter you're very rarely if at all in the edit room and so most of the time as a cinematographer you're getting you're getting your all the time you're getting your rate up front so you're the person that's getting paid you get paid for your specific thing unless you have some sort of deal where you're getting points which is a very rare kind of thing so you get paid up front you work your ass off up front um and a lot of times you're there there's sometimes that you're there to cover a director's ass. Like a, a lot of movies that are done today, the cinematographer is actually doing a lot of the directing, you know, and they're coming in and doing that. So you're in front and you're taking the brunt of all the, the front end creative stuff, at least visually. Uh, and then you get into the edit room. And the first thing that happens in the edit room is you like whoever's not in that edit room usually gets thrown under the bus, like immediately. And I'm not going to talk about anything specifically, but what happens is in my experience, if I'm not in the, in the edit and when I shoot, whether I'm shooting doc stuff or if I'm shooting music video stuff, if I'm not in the edit, uh, a producer or a random editor may just go like, well, we didn't get that because the DP wasn't there or he took too much time. And the next thing you know, your relationship as a cinematographer can be tarnished with the producer or the clients or even the director because they went through the edit process. And I think it's just dangerous for you not to be thinking about where this stuff goes, not to be thinking about the fact that, look, I got to get coverage because if I don't get this coverage and the scene doesn't work, my, my, my neck's on the chopping block for this. And I'm really not going to be able to be there to defend myself. Uh, there's, there's been times where I shoot stuff where stuff is happening on set and I know that that's going to happen and I will audio slate it. I will actually go... This is what's happening on set. This is a cinematographer and this is what's going on and this is where it's going. <laughs> and uh, hello, editor. I know you're going to give me shit for this, but this is why this is going on. I just want you to know that this is the scenario because I've been in the edit room. I've been in the edit room with, with creative clients and commercial jobs. I've been in those spaces where uh, it, the day didn't go the way you wanted it to and it isn't necessarily anybody's fault, but the people that get blamed for are the people that aren't in that edit room to support themselves. Um, that's a weird little industry inside thing. It got a little dark there, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what it is. So I, I guess my point is, is that as a shooter myself, I would always be thinking about the edit. I would always be thinking about how this piece comes together. And then it's about that relationship with the director. And so I would always be communicating with that director going, look, this is the scenario. Like, how do I, what would you like to do? Do you want this thing to look fucking really great right now? How far are we on a schedule? How much coverage and what shots are the most, what shots are the most important shots? What shots are the ones that are going to last the longest? And I try to do that with you too, where I'll sit there and go, this one's going to be on screen for a while. So take your fucking time, go work on it. But then when we start to get in those insert shit, it's just like, shoot me an insert here, shoot me an insert here, shoot me an insert here, shoot me an insert here. Cause I can make this scene speed by. And then we'll have like 12 cams, a really good example. Everything looked really great, but you're dealing in the office scene with R and the professor. I wanted to make sure that the lighting coming through those windows and that color contrast and everything was fucking perfect because I knew that we were going to constantly be on that space. And I know the way that the audience reads things, they're going to go, I really love the blue. 
in that room. I really like that. And it's because we spent so much time establishing that amber and establishing that warmth for at least five minutes prior to that so that when you go into that blue space, it's like jumping in cold water and you're like, wow, this is really fucking cool. So I knew that when we were shooting against those windows, you needed the time to do that stuff. It was like tweak that stuff and find those little incidents. But then when we get into coverage, it's like, just fucking go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, I think that comes down to everybody's style too. I, I tend to like lighting spaces more. Um, I, I typically let, you know, think about how a space could be lit, not necessarily 360, but in most of the directions that you're going to look so that if you do move in for close-ups, you're bringing in something real simple to maybe shape that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But for me, I, I love living in, in wides and, and having a beautiful wide is, is, you know, that, that to me, how would I put it? It, it speaks volumes about all the thought put into uh, the location and the production design and and all that stuff that you're putting in front of the camera, you know, lighting lighting a face is easy. So that's not something I'm I'm sitting there agonizing over, especially when it comes down to schedule and money and you know the ads yelling at you to, to yeah, right. that your days running out. But I do think you made an interesting point about the edit. You know, I I personally am not a, a fan of editing. I don't like doing it. I edit my reel. Maybe like some you know Instagram posts here and there, um, but it's something that I think is really important as a DP to keep in mind. And there have been times where even if we're tight on schedule, I'm looking at the coverage that we're doing somewhere. And uh, I actually did this on a short film recently where we shot you know kind of a medium, and then the director wanted a close up to cut to, and he was he suggested just throwing on a longer lens, and I've. I thought it would be really jarring to just go from from medium to super tight. So we talked about it for a second, and he's another one of these great collaborators. So we talked about it. We talked about how the edit would work. It took maybe five minutes, and then we moved it, moved the shot just enough so that it wouldn't be a jarring cut in a scene which is going to have a lot of cuts and a lot of coverage so that wouldn't take you out of it when you're in the middle of it. Mm. Which is cool. There's... Um, what is the school of thought? It's like in order to cut between two shots, it needs to be, I'm going to fuck this up. It needs to be at (laughs) least, there needs to be at least like a 45% difference between the two shots. Like in order to cut between them and have it flow perfectly, I'm going to mess it up. I don't know if it's like 30% difference. So like if you're going from like a medium shot into a tighter version of it, it has to be, there has to be at least... I don't know. I think it's like a 30% difference. I shouldn't be fucking putting shit out that I haven't researched. But, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, uh, my point is, is that as a cinematographer, even though you don't like editing, it's actually a beneficial thing if you sat in the room with a with an editor and you actually go through that process of uh, trying to piece together a scene. Because um, as, as an editor, there's nothing worse than... Fu- like. Actually, there's nothing worse than having 85% of it because then you start to feel it. Like as one of the things that we did really well with 12 Cam because we jammed so much in to do that um, is that we reserved time to do those inserts and we reserved time to do those super close-up things which ended up saving my ass in like a couple of different sequences. And I think in the office sequence was one of those spots where everything we shot was so perfect and you start to cut it and you start to flow it where it's like, oh my God, he comes into the room and I'm in the space. And then even as even as the filmmaker in the edit room, I'm like, I'm in. 
You know what I mean? And you're in. And then there's that one moment where like someone turns to the right and then the reversal coverage doesn't have that same fucking turn. And you're like, ah, it's not a big deal. And you just, you, you just cut them together. You just smash them together and you continue to watch that scene. You watch that scene again like 300 times later and you're like, the fucking scene is so good except for this fucking moment. And then you're like, yeah, but maybe it's just because I'm scrutinizing it. I've seen it 100 times, no big deal. And so then you show it to someone that comes in to do a test screening and they're like, that scene just feels a little long. Right. And you're like, what? It do, does it feel long? Because I'm giving you all the dialogue and stuff. Does it actually feel long? And they go, yeah, it just feels a little bit long. And you're like, and so then you're starting to scrutinize and start to recut the scene and you're trying to figure out why it fucking feels long. And then uh, I'm like, it's just that cut. And so we went and shot like an insert, some, some stupid little fucking insert. And I use that insert as the uh, transition between that turn and that close up. And the scene was fine. I didn't shorten the fucking scene. I didn't do anything other than put that transitional thing in there. Um, and that's something that I haven't really learned. In, I, I didn't learn until I was the one cutting it. And so now, like, you, you see me on set where I'm like, we got to get the shot. Like, you asked me yesterday. We were shooting yesterday. You're like, why do you want to shoot these, these heat lamp things? I'm like, because it's going to save my ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to save. Because half the time we're shooting art. And then the other half of the time, I feel like I'm, I'm creating a bin in my edit bay that's called the, holy fuck, we need to save the scene bin. And you're just loading clips and cutaways into this bin going like, this is in case I'm fucking completely wrong. And in the edit, I can save this thing. You know? Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something, the, those little moments too is something that I, I try and capture, you know, that, that like pan into something or you know, rolling the camera just a little bit earlier or not cutting when, when those are the, when huge. everybody says cut and seeing if I can capture that extra little bit. Maybe the actor looks down or away or something before they break character. That's, that's actually really huge for the edit. And it is something, you know, it is something that, that is constantly on my mind, even if it, in the end it doesn't end up working or you're still sitting there tearing your hair out <laughs> in the edit room. It can happen, you know, but I'm doing my like I do my best to give all the material that that I can to edit so that you know the the film turns out great. And actually, here's a great here's another um, uh, call out that would be good to do is uh, the AD mm-hmm. and having a really good AD that can schedule in in a really efficient manner that can run a good set and that can also be a creative collaborator because I've had some fantastic ADs that say. Hey, we're ready to shoot this. Do you want the actor to step into this? And perhaps no one else thought of it but the AD who's just yep. asking the questions and you get that cut point that matches with the other person stepping into it and you're like, "All right, great." So yep. again, collaboration. That's that is the name of the game. Yeah, and it's no it's no one's when I was mentioning the lack of coverage, it isn't always it, it's no one's fault. Essentially what you're trying to do is you you are trying to create a world that happens in front of a camera and whether you're just doing it with two people sitting on a couch or whether you're doing it with 30 fucking extras. Um, there are so many variables that being a singular human being, you just can't catch all these variables. And even if I'm in that focus tent, you know what I mean? Where it's just like, no one talked to me and I'm staring at a fucking monitor. You're still dealing with outside influence on all this stuff. So, to have good collaborators, like you said, AD, I'm going to do a whole episode on AD because I, I, I think that's a very underappreciated uh, crew position that a lot of people don't understand what it actually is. 
And it's the first to be cut these days for some reason. I dude, it's 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 budget shit. And at the end of the day, I think producers are like, I need someone to turn on a camera. I need someone to talk to the monkeys that are going to be in front of the camera, and I need to hire a bunch of uh, monkeys to perform in front of the camera. So that's that's the core basis of it. But the AD is such an integral part on scheduling. It's such an integral part on dealing with background talent, uh, actually being uh, your your commander for the crew and for the teams. Um, and a good AD is a reasonable voice, an authoritative voice, and someone that is getting the, the, the set moving without people realizing that he's doing so. Um, because, you know, running a film shoot is like herding cats. Oh, yeah. I think herding cats might be easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, okay. So I mean, we're going we're going sort of deep here. Let me get us back on track. Um, so as a cinematographer, what do you like to shoot? That is that is a big question. Yeah, like is it are you are you a documentarian guy? Are you a narrative guy? Like, what do you prefer to shoot? Like, what do you love to shoot? Um, I I'd say my my biggest passion is is narrative, and I'd say either. Well, I haven't I haven't really done TV yet, so I'd be interested to see how very long form narrative uh, works with me as far as what I like to do. But I have done a bunch of features, and I, for the most part, I like the idea of features. I haven't had, you know, they're in the indie world. Features are very difficult um, to you know put it nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the ones that do well, the ones where you do have a, a a great collaboration. You have people that you love working with, and most importantly, you get to tell a, a an awesome story together. Um, those are extremely rewarding from a creative perspective, and that to me is why I got into this field to begin with. Now, I do love shooting commercials here and there. Um, I I think that it's a really interesting time to be shooting commercials because the I think I think some of the creativity is coming back. I think because the the budgets have been cut over the last few years and people have had to make do with less, that the one place that you can really affect is being creative. Yeah, and that has been a lot of fun. I've I've had a few really wonderful collaborations in the last year or two that that we've been able to take some risks and try out some really cool things, and and that's been pretty cool. Um, and then music videos, you know those. Those are difficult too. The budgets are almost non-existent, but if again, if you do get a really great collaborator, you get some some really cool people that are in it for the vision. It, they're an awesome place to experiment and try new things, and maybe work with some people you haven't worked with before, or play with some new lights, or you know whatever. But it's it's a place where taking risks is uh, is not just. It's not just something that that's fun to do. It's almost a necessity because there are so many music videos out there, and they yeah. all look the same. Yep, yep. And you know, to stand out, being able to take those risks and and do something different—that's that's what you need to do to succeed in the music video world. I completely agree. I completely agree. So, um, what is it? So, narrative is your is your thing. Totally, is your thing. And okay, so you get a script. What is your what is your process? Like, how do you start to break it down? Um, so I typically will read a script first and I'll think about it. Um, depends on how much time I have to think about it. But 
I'll read a script first, then I'll start pulling images. This is especially if I'm kind of interviewing to do the project. Um, I'll start pulling mood images. And then as I'm doing that, I'll probably, you know, find certain scenes that I really like or uh, read, you know, read sections of it again. Sometimes I'll read the whole thing again if it's something that's really good. Um, and I'll put these mood images together. And what I like to do is once I have this folder of images, I select all of them. I hit the, what's, what's it called? The spotlight, you know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like space on the Mac and oh, it, yeah, yeah. it brings everything up. And then there's a little thumbnail or a little uh, icon that has like all these little squares on it. And it turns, uh, it turns the one previewed image into a gallery. And what I like to, I do this also after I shoot a project, but especially before I see how the entire collection of mood images works together. And I can immediately spot when I've got, you know, 30, 40 thumbnails in front of me, I can immediately spot the stuff that stands out. And I think about why does it stand out? Does it stand out because it's really telling a certain part of the story? Is it there for a specific scene? Is it more of a reference for you know, maybe a conversation with a costume designer, like, you know, it'd be really cool if this character had a yellow dress in this scene because it pops and it hits the emotions properly. Or does it stand out because it makes absolutely no sense and I just liked the image at the time. Right. And now it's in this bin. So, um, you know, I'll do that and eventually I'll put that into a big PDF. I'll put it together with like color references. Maybe I'll put some descriptions in and, uh, you know, that, that eventually gets passed to the director and the producer and we yep. sit down and have a conversation about this is how I interpreted your vision. Um, you know, and I might have a, a treatment of theirs to go off of, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I like to, I like to show how I would use color, you know, color balance, um, color contrast, framing, yep. Yep. um, exposure, et cetera. To, to tell the story and sometimes I'll have have something that starts out really like blue and dark and as the story gets really happy it might turn like yellow and bright and then you know there's there's uh, there's as much of a story in the progression of images in the in the sum of all these parts as there is you know the the actors performing and the you know the other other uh, artists doing their thing throughout the, the entire project yeah yeah I love that shit, man. I get real fucking, you and I talk about this all the time. I get real nerdy on like the, and I, I use this term and maybe I haven't talked about it enough on the show. It's just the visual art of storytelling. Like there's something so cool about not only the lens choice that you make, because we could talk a minute about lenses. Let's just break it down a bit. And we're, we're going a little long here, but if we do, I might split this up into two episodes. Fuck it. Because it's worth it. <laughs> Um, let's just talk about lenses for a second. Like, I think I remember I talked to a young filmmaker and this blew my fucking mind. I talked to a young filmmaker who came to me and he said, I shot, he was so proud. And he's like, I shot my whole movie, my whole short film on a 50 millimeter lens. And I was like, cool. Why? He's like, what do you mean? Why? I was like, why did you do it? Why? What was the choice? Is there a choice for it? Did it make sense for the character? Did it make any sense? He goes, well, no, I just, you know, I heard that that was the, 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 I hear that that's the lens you're supposed to use. And I shot the whole fucking thing with that thing. And I'm like, what? you have, li that's like being a chef that came in and said, look, I made this whole meal and I just use salt and I use nothing else. And it's just one tool amongst this whole spice cabinet of options that are lenses. 
Um, and let's talk a little bit about that. Like, okay, so 50 millimeter, they say, is supposed to be equal to what your eye sees, like the actual eye sees, correct? It's, <clears throat> it's equal, as far as I understand it, it's equal to the perspective of the eye as far as how objects look in in the distance and and how they stack up in the it, from your uh from right in front of you to far away but you also are able to see a lot wider than what a 50 would be so it and then at that point like you can start talking about formats is like, it anamorphic is it, anamorphic? Is it, is it is a large sensor is it you know is it 16 millimeter so certain lenses will have certain perspectives, but they'll have different fields of view. They'll have different um, uh, depths of field based on on certain, uh, you know, and like the sensor size and all that stuff. So yeah, there's there's never one there's never one tool that can get everything. Um, that being said, I think that you can use a limited amount. Of tools to get great results and sometimes having limitations actually increases your creativity mm -hmm. and I've shot stuff on you know I've shot a, a few projects on just one lens but not because it was someone telling me that that's the thing you should do we you know I've, I've one project that comes to mind is with another uh, another director that I collaborate with frequently Stu Valberg uh, we shot his previous short film on a single 35 millimeter anamorphic mm -hmm. and we shot that because it was a dark gritty story and we wanted to feel like we were in the space with these two characters and the wide uh was it the wide field of view um really helped sell that like you felt like you were a third person in this room uh, experiencing this interaction and it made you really uncomfortable because it was an interaction that was one horrible and two, like you shouldn't be there. Yeah. So we were forcing the viewer into this room and that was a, a predetermined um, creative choice. And were you using diopters and stuff with that one? Totally. Yeah. yeah. So the 35 is an interesting lens to actually choose because the 35 is a bit of both of what we were talking about. 35 to me feels like the center is kind of like a 50. And then it has a wider field of view on the on the outskirts that doesn't really bow a hell of a lot. Although I don't know on that specific lens, I'm talking like probably sphericals is what I'm thinking. But for me, when I think of a 35 millimeter, I feel like the center of a 35 millimeter is like what I would normally see with a 50 mil, which is that what we were discussing, like that uh, what your eye would see the distance between you and that. And then I feel like the outskirts of a 35 start to give you a bit more of that. Uh, wider field of view that having two eyes have, which is like, that's an interesting lens to choose because I would protect, particularly probably choose that lens. And then when I asked about diopters with uh, anamorphic lenses, you have a minimum focus depth on those. And most of the time it's what, like four feet, three feet or something like that. So, so all lenses have a, you know, a set focus range. Anamorphic tends to have a, uh, a further minimum focus and especially if you're using vintage glass you tend to have a minimum focus that starts really far away from the lens so in in the case of 12 km in the case of who's there and in the case of this project with Stu, uh called mcgrim um, we were using uh, the the lomo square front anamorphics which the 35 has like a three foot close focus the 50 is about five feet and the the, the 80 is about seven and a half feet which you have to put on some pretty strong diopters to be able to get real close with that lens. And, and here's, to break that down even further, here's the difference. 
you can take a, a 35 millimeter and put someone four or five feet away from you, six feet away from you, and it's a wide shot. And they're sort of sitting in this space. I don't know, maybe it's a head to toe if they're sitting on a chair, that kind of thing. Maybe maybe more, but that that's the wide shot. And if that is your minimum depth, that's as close as you can get to that person before they go out of focus. So then if you're looking at that lens, which is a prime lens, you're looking at that lens going, okay, I'm gonna use this lens for that kind of shot. I'm gonna use it for wides. But if you use diopters and you change that field of focus closer, you can actually use that lens as a close-up lens, which is fascinating. Like uh, Michael Mann, watching Michael Mann's movies is what really opened my eyes to using wide-angle lenses as close-up lenses. Um, because if you shoot with a 50 that has a close focus, uh, it's a very square image. And like the field of view is very much, I don't know how to describe it. The field of view is very much within the range of, of a 50 millimeter. But if you shoot a close up with like an 18 or like a 20, if you have like a real close focus, you're able to get right up on that person's face, but actually see the world around them. And if you shoot a close up with like a 85 or like a hundo or like something longer, uh, everything goes out of focus and everything becomes really tight. So if you look at those images right next to those three images right next to each other, a 50 millimeter close up is kind of like the conversation that you and I are having right now where you're cutting between you and you're cutting between me and it feels pretty natural. You really don't think about it. And then if you're using like an 85 or 100, because the field of view is so tight and because the focus is so very specific, it's almost like I'm going in your mind. It's almost like I'm really embedded into whatever that thought is. But if I use a close-up with like an 18 or like a 20, there's a claustrophobia. Strangely, there's this claustrophobia element that comes about using a wide angle lens, which is really cool. Uh, I can still see the world around. And one scene in particular that I think about is from The Insider, when uh, right after uh, Russell Crowe like delivers his testimony and he goes down into the lobby and there's a handheld camera shit and it's like literally right over his shoulder and his eyeglasses are in focus and it's really, really fucking tight. And he's freaking out because he thinks people are following him. And it's this really intense scene that was done with a wide angle lens. And it's a close-up with a wide-angle lens. Um, so that's why I asked if you guys are using diopters. Because if you're using diopters, it is more than just your standard 35-millimeter lens. It ends up becoming close focus. So you can use that as a utility as opposed to just being... Kind of, I, there's a lot of movies that do that, like uh, Wes Anderson movies, where he has like a very specific frame, and those are his frames that he uses. And I think he uses very specific lenses, too. Like maybe like one or two different types of lenses for his movies. I don't know. I'm talking out of my head. <laughs> yeah, he's he's great with uh with mixing formats too. That's that's why I really like it's so like Grand Budapest Hotel, shot four three, four three, sixteen nine, yeah. and anamorphic like all of them, and they used all those different lenses in those different time periods, which I thought was really cool. And just real quick, the my my favorite modern reference for using wide angle lenses as close-ups. I mean, this is every, every DP's hero is, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki mm -hmm. or Chivo as, as he's known. And he's shot some incredible, incredible films, you know, aside from Roger Deakins, he's one of the great living cinematographers at the moment. And, uh, the, the film, the Revenant, love it or hate it. I think it has some of the greatest, uh, close-up, photography with wide angle lenses ridiculously you, wide angle lenses ridiculously like 14s 12s 18s that sort of thing and my i personally love getting the image kind of dirty and when 
when you've got that shot of Leonardo DiCaprio and you're right up there with him and he's breathing on the lens and it's fogging <laughs> it up. I love that. You know, it's like it's like when you're playing those uh, the modern warfare video games and you know you you some bomb explodes near you and you get like a bunch of of dirt or, or water or mud and, and that stuff hits the TV screen. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. I think it's super yeah. cool. We did something on 12KM where we had so much dust in the place and it kept falling onto the lens and the diopter and giving us these like little golden specks everywhere. Yeah. And my uh, my camera assistant kept opening up the map box to try and clean the diopter. I was like, no, don't don't touch it. Like <laughs> like we're in it now. This is this is the world we're in, you know. Well, it's one of the other reasons you and I get along so well. We talked about that early where I think that uh, it's all about suspension of disbelief for me. And I think that a lot of digital stuff is way too clean. I think a lot of these new anamorphic lenses are way too perfect. And it's almost like sometimes I feel like I'm watching like Bollywood stuff where I'm like, this is like, I, I can't believe anything because this is way too clean, way too crisp. This isn't how I see the world. I mean, I've got bad eye. like i've got floaties in my eyes at this point i've got like uh, i never clean my windshield you know what i mean i see the world through all this grime like lens flares are a constant for me um and i just believe it i feel like if every everything's got its place everything everything is a tool in the kit and if you're going to do something super clean and crisp and it's hyper real i got it but i tend to like what you like which is that dirty fucking dirty it up make it totally. look cool add more texture that's that's painting shit that's like my dad is a collage painter and he started by uh doing like these amazing portraits with mixed mediums so he'd do like paints he'd do like he'd tear colors out of magazines and start to build stuff out of that and i remember watching his progression and seeing how it would start which would normally be a canvas or a piece of wood and like just these little ripped tears of reds and blues and greens and it wouldn't really come together for me until he started to do washes. So he would do like a tinted poly wash or he'd do something else and, he, and like flecks of fucking sand and dust would get mixed into it. And then when you finally see that image, which would have some sort of poly glaze with a color tint and that in itself would be reflecting the light when you're looking at it. And then he'd have like these rough spots where he'd rough them up with sandpaper and stuff and that had its own little texture and that really tied together the entire image. So it went from just being a bunch of teared little fucking pieces of color to being like this polished, finished. I always say this, you can smell it. Like you look at it and you go, I know that world. I know where that is. And I think that's what we do well, is that whole dirtying of the frame. And we're not very intentional about it. It's just sort of like, let it happen. Here are the elements that we know are going to give us some aberrations and shit and let's play in that let's see let's be fucking surprised by what these lenses do let's be fucking surprised by what you know pumping a room full of fucking haze is gonna do <laughs> yeah. you know like that's i don't think that's a surprise anymore and i think we very well know what a room full of haze is gonna look like <laughs> not these days <laughs> poor ruben one of our, our our good buddy uh ruben who's been on the show who uh, also gas for us uh he's a gaffer for us a lot uh, he was complaining to me the other day. He's like, I just cannot stand the smell of haze anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, he and I got caught in essentially a closet with a fogger. And someone who shall not be named turned it on and thought it was funny if they would just let it run. 
<laughs> and despite us saying, please turn it off, that's more than enough, thank you, it kept going and going and going until the whole house was so filled that we had to actually open all the doors and shut down production for like 10 minutes while it cleared. Yeah, I couldn't see too much. It was too much haze. Yeah, the only time we've ever had too much. <laughs> There's never too much haze. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that's a, we go on and on about lenses, but the thing that... Uh, as you start to, and for me as a shooter, as I start to understand lenses, I start to play with lenses and I start to understand how I feel when I look at the material. And then you start to uh, understand how other folks feel. And then when you are, when I was studying lenses, I would start to watch other movies and then desperately try to figure out what kind of lenses they were using. There was a period of time where I was hunting and hunting to try to figure out what kind of lenses Fincher was using. Um, and I think there was this, there's this fabled Panic Room special edition DVD that I haven't been able to find that I fucking love that has uh, a split screen on it. And it was like during one of the scenes in Panic Room where um, I think they were running to get to the door before the door closes. Forrest Whitaker and all them are in it. And he had a split screen of all six cameras because he was running like six cameras or four cameras at the time. I remember looking at each one of those frames going like, ugh, that's a crap shot, that's a crap shot, that's a crap shot. And then he would roll it, and you'd see, as the actor ran through all six cameras, you would see where the Fincher shots would happen, bam, 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 and listed underneath them were the different focal points, or the focal choices. And I was like, oh, it's like a 32. Okay, cool, and that's this. And so I really started to uh, get really nerdy and excited about that because I was figuring out his... His secrets. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we can get real nerdy on lenses. Like, what are your, what do you prefer? Actually, no, because that's such a general question. What are your favorite lenses? What have been your favorite lenses to shoot with? Uh, I mean, it's, it, it is a, it is a pretty loaded question. It, it is. You know, it comes down to what's the best tool for the job? What's the, what's going to tell the story in the right way? Um, and what's also going to express you as an artist, you know, it, you, you can definitely do a lot with just one set of lenses. I mean, I think Deacons is, you know, the, one of the best examples of having a format and, and a medium that, that he likes and he does everything with, with framing choices, camera movement, lighting, and he just uses the same, the same camera, the same lenses every single time. And that's totally fine for me. I like experimenting a bit more. I like finding, uh, you know, I like finding the stuff that tells that particular story in a certain way. Um, obviously I own a set of the Lomo square fronts. I love them. I love how they can be soft and dirty and flare at certain times, but they also have this amazing quality of of almost like 3D without it being 3D, where you feel the character's presence um, and the background just kind of beautifully falls away. Mm -hmm. And the character themselves are, they're, they're so cut out of the background, they feel like they're almost coming out of the screen at you. And I've heard other DPs talk about these specific lenses as having that quality. I don't know what it is specifically that does it. <laughs> you don't need but, to. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think when you get into the commercial realm, there's there's how I put it, it's the considerations might be a little bit different. 
you know, so I tend to use uh, like a Summicrons or Master Primes a lot on commercial jobs because they're sharp, because they're fast, because they don't have a lot of aberrations. But that's also the safe choice. And I've shot my fair share of stuff on anamorphic or, or like old Zeiss super speeds or whatever. And I, I think going back to uh, commercials kind of taking a more taking more risks and getting a little more creative over the last couple of years, I think that's a place that um, has started to welcome you know more creative choices. And you know I, I've even shot a commercial on my on my square fronts, which I never thought would happen. <laughs> given that they're so dirty. So, um, you know, anything's possible. I think it just comes down to, to telling the story the right way and, and having it feel right. So I hope you guys really enjoyed the conversation. I know it got really sort of nerdy and in-depth, but that's what you have been asking for. I've been getting a lot of questions from you guys online on how does a DP and cinematographer work together? How do Cruder and I work together? So I just wanted to plop you down into a conversation that we normally have. Um, and here's the cool thing. We talked a lot more. There's another hour of a conversation, um, but I'm not going to put it all out in one chunk. I just try to keep the episodes to about an hour 20 max because uh, I know it's a commitment to sit down and listen for a long period of time and I appreciate the fact that you guys do in a world where everybody likes to watch quick clips 30 second clips you guys are actually investing an hour and change which is a very beautiful heart warming thing to me that you guys like to sit around and listen to this idiot uh, talk <laughs> so what I'm going to do is uh, I'll put together a whole second episode of this um, the tone changes a bit, and it gets uh, kind of fun, actually. We talk about a bunch of cool stuff. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to promise to release it next. I think uh, I've got a bunch of episodes in the pipeline, so we'll stagger this one out a little bit. Add some suspense, get you excited. So if you're not subscribing to us yet, I highly suggest you do. You can subscribe to In Love With The Process on iTunes. You can subscribe on uh, SoundCloud. Uh, Stitcher, any of the major podcast outlets. And if you subscribe to a podcast outlet that we're not on, write to me and tell me. It's so hard keeping up with this shit, guys. It seems like a new one comes up every three seconds. Um, so thank you for listening. And like I said before, support us. I really appreciate you guys supporting us. And I really want to do this show uh, almost full time. The only way that's going to happen is if I get more sponsors. And the only way that I'm going to get more sponsors is if you guys show us that you're listening, that means you got to follow me on Instagram. So if you go to In Love With The Process Pod, that's In Love With The Process P-O-D, on Instagram, follow, comment, get into it, start talking to me, um, and uh, that will show the sponsors that you guys are listening, uh, which is good, and then I can go to them for cash, and then this show can continue to be free, and then I can make a little bit of money so that I can pay rent. <laughs> Speaking of Instagram, I just recently ran a few question polls there, uh, which have been great. You guys have been responding to them really well and sending some really great questions. Uh, and some of them I will try, like if they're short answers, I usually try to respond right in the Instagram stories. Uh, but some of them are a little bit longer and I promise to respond to them on the show. 
so stand by as my phone uh, acts like a fucking asshole. <laughs> All right, let me see which ones I have suggested that I talk about on the show. Ba-ba-ba-bum. Uh, we talked about, I answered a good question on Instagram about three-point lighting. Do you think three-point lighting is a rule for lighting? Um, go to the Instagram account uh, and check that out. I'll have an archive uh, up there that says questions. You'll be able to find the answer to that. Um, but, okay, here's one that I promised to do on the show. It is, what if I can't afford making a movie and publish it? Uh, I am young and I have talent and script. It looks like the question went further, but Instagram only lets me have three lines. Um, okay, so if you find yourself uh, in a situation where you have a script and you have an idea uh, and you just can't afford to make it because your idea is big or your idea is medium size and you still don't have access to do medium size stuff, maybe you live uh, in a part of the country that doesn't have solid crews or maybe you live in a place uh, that doesn't have access to the gear that you need. Um, my point is this. There are people looking online, whether it's uh, studio execs, producers, uh, other people that work in the industry, everybody's hunting online for something cool. They're all looking in different places. And with uh, things like Instagram, uh, with things like uh, Vimeo, uh, you can get work out there and impress folks. So if you have a bigger job, if you have a bigger script that you just can't pull together and you need resources, you might need some funding, you might need some Kickstarter funding, or you might need just a camera, uh, you're also typing that fucking question to me with an iPhone. And as much as I hate these damn things, uh, they have the ability to shoot with an app. They have the ability to shoot really high quality video. Uh, and Steven Sodenberg did it. Uh, he made a whole movie with an iPhone. Like, so my suggestion to you is shoot scenes, shoot moments, shoot tiny little bits. Uh, look at David Sandberg stuff, the guy who uh, directed uh, uh, Shazam, and he also did uh, Annabelle 2, and he did Lights Out. Go and look at David Sandberg's old account, and he would just do really great, scary scenes with his wife. And very simple scenes that were light switch on and off, and there's a there's a demon when it goes dark. Uh, but he was able to show a a voice in the way he edited it. He was able to show uh, a bit of visual style in the way he shot it, um, and he was making pieces that affected people. And you know for a fact that if you make something that is cool and you see it online, you want to reach out and talk to that person. This is the best way to get people to work with you is if you start to make your own little projects and most people are forgiving they don't expect you to have like three helicopters fly over the top and be riding in on like inflatable fucking boats with machine guns in your hands uh you can do a really fantastic scene like um with nothing uh recently i think i've talked about this on the show recently i saw i think it's a star is born it's the bradley cooper and uh, lady gaga movie fantastic fucking movie and there's a lot of big sequences in it, you know, where they're playing on stages and the musician stuff that's very memorable. Um, but my favorite scene in that movie, the most memorable scene for me, is, without spoilers here, um, is when he is uh, getting out of the pickup truck. 
um, and he turns to um, God damn it, what's his name? He's nominated for the fucking thing uh, from Roadhouse. Jesus Christ, someone's gonna be, you're gonna be screaming it, and I, I can't hear you guys because my brain's not working. But he goes to get out of that truck, and he has this really heartfelt moment where he mumbles something to him, and the door closes. And just the editing for that that had me in tears. Uh, and it's like a two-minute scene. So you can do those things. You can make really cool little moments, really cool little scenes. Uh, getting a YouTube account is free. Getting a Vimeo account basic is free. Uh, and just start making collections of that. And honestly, honest to fucking God, uh, we were just scouting today. And we were in a hotel today. And they had all this artwork up in the hotel. And I was like, cool, who are you using to uh, curate all this art? Like, we just go through Instagram and find people that we like and we buy it. So Instagram is what everybody looks at. So uh, do it, put it up there. And Instagram's got like a running, like a limited running, running time, running time, limited running time of 60 seconds. So there you go. That would be my answer to that question. Um, let me see if there's another one here. I, if I was a real pro, I'd have all these prepped. But since I don't, my phone goes into uh, silent mode. And I have to wait for it to warm back up. Well, let's see here. Duh. Oh, another question. Does God hate me? Yes. Yes, he does. It's a good question, guys. Uh, what, is, what is an underrated movie? My answer on this one. Uh, actually, go look. Go on my Instagram account and check it out. What do you guys think I think is an underrated movie? Uh, I think it's from the 90s, actually. So go on Instagram and check that out. Um, one second. I'm also doing it. So if you go to the Instagram account in Love of the Process POD, I am answering questions. I am also answering questions on my personal account, which is at Mike Petchy. Go request uh, to be a follower. And if you're cool, uh, I'll let you in. <laughs> All right, let's see here. Uh, was there another one in here? I feel like there was. Uh, have I ever done any underwater filming? No, I haven't. Um, oh, okay. So there's a question here that says, uh, how does a writer pitch a movie to a production company or a director? Uh, there's a few of these questions on pitching because uh, I know I've talked on the show about how I'm in the process of pitching films uh, it's a very difficult thing, and this sort of pairs well with the last question. Um, in order to be able to pitch to big places, you need to have access to those big places, and the only way you're going to get access to those big places is you either get representation, like a management or an agent, or those big places know about you and have seen something you've done, and they go to you to ask you about what it is that you're working on. It is so hard to crack into a pitch process because there are so many of us that are doing it and these people that work at production companies, these people that work uh, at studios are inundated with this stuff and they filter through that whole process most of the time by either looking at only at shit that comes at them from like reputable management or uh, agents or through uh, the hunt that their uh, assistants and uh, small and junior execs at their offices find online. So uh, film festivals kind of sort of maybe, but I think I have such a problem with 
especially if you're just doing shorts, I don't think you're going to get found. It's a very lucky thing if you get found at a film festival for a short. Um, but the best place to do shit is online. So if you have a great uh, short film, if you have a really good pitch, if you have a really good idea for something, um, obviously copyright it, obviously trade, not trademark it, but send it through the, the, uh, the screenwriting offices, get it all uh, copyrighted before you start talking about that stuff online. Um, but you can make videos, you can uh, write articles, uh, you can talk about these projects, and if you pair that with your work, if you have really good online work, uh, you can actually start to get articles written about you. You can come on podcasts and talk to people on different podcasts about that. Um, just any way that you can get junior execs to find your work. And most junior execs are under 30 guys. So they're using social media. Um, I know that that is a very short answer to a very long question. Um, but I'm going to try to get will simmons who writes my scripts he's been doing pitching for a lot longer than i have i'm going to try to get him on the show at some point and then uh he'll, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll talk about it we'll gab about it um, but anyway enough of that uh if you have more questions for me definitely go to either in love with the process pod that's in love with the process pod on instagram or go to at mike petchy on instagram leave me questions interact with me guys you can also go to in love with the process uh Dot com and there you can write to me and do all that stuff as well i'm trying to keep up with everything i love you guys i got a bunch more episodes on the way thanks for listening